Hi, you guys. Michael Debar here. You know, I was in this band, The Power Station, and... The power! And I, I wanted to tell you about this new podcast. Now, we all know that there's a tremendous amount of podcasts, but this guy, Joe Kay, he really knows what he's talking about. Get it on, get it on, get it on. Welcome to listeners, the new listeners, to Joe Kay's new podcast. Steve, I'll drive. We'll take a nice little spin out in the country. You sit and lean coolly out the window. We'll pretend these are our mothers. <laughs> Born to be! This is Play That Rock and Roll Podcast Edition. I'm your host, Joseph K., and like the song at the start says, just call me Joe. Now, that clip you just heard was from Married with Children, and it is a humorous take on one of the most iconic songs of the 1960s, Born to be Wild. And today, we're going to be talking about the band behind that song. I played that clip because it is this perfect humorous take on what that song means to the baby boomer generation. That song is synonymous with adventure, independence, and quite frankly, the youth of the boomers. But there is a lot more to the Steppenwolf story than just Born to be Wild and Easy Rider, the movie that made it as famous as it is today. And I'm going to be honest, we have a lot to get to today, so I really can't waste a lot of time on an intro. So... Trust me on this. Just get your motor running. We're going to head out on the highway and dive into the full career and discography of John Kay and Steppenwolf. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. And whatever comes our way. So the one constant figure in Steppenwolf is John Kay. And just right away... For what it's worth, no relation. My last name's Kay, so is his, but we're not related at all. John was born in East Germany in 1944, which is near the tail end of World War II. John's birth name, which I will butcher here, is actually Joachim Fritz Kraladat. And he was born on April 12, 1944, which makes him 77 today. His biological father was a German soldier who was killed in the war just one month before he was born. To make matters worse, John was born with severe eyesight issues and was damn near blind as a kid. And he could have been fully blind as an adult if not for the actions taken by his mother. After the war ended, a town doctor told his mother that the only hope for John's eyesight was to get him better nutrition. Better nutrition was sort of a low-key code for saying 
that she needed to defect to West Germany where there was better food and health options available. Because at the end of World War II, when Germany was split into two countries, the Soviets were raiding East Germany and taking resources out, whereas the Allies were flooding West Germany with food, resources, medical help, everything that they needed. So there was a stark disparity in living conditions between East and West. And for someone like John, who had a health concern, he was not going to get that resolved where he lived. So his mother bravely smuggled him across the border into West Germany in 1948. His mother remarried as well, and the family then immigrated to Toronto, Canada in 1958. And like many immigrants, John's social circle could not pronounce his birth name, so when he got old enough, he changed it to John K. I bring this up only because this is very similar in my own personal family history. My great-grandfather was from Poland, and he had some unpronounceable Polish last name, and when he moved to America... None of his friends could pronounce his last name, so he said, the hell with it, I'll just shorten it to K. That's what they call me anyway. And that sort of thing, if you didn't know, is super common for people whose families immigrated from Europe. If you heard my interview with Joe Milliken earlier this year, we talked about his book about Benjamin Orr. Benjamin Orr is another one of those people who changed his last name because... His birth last name is like 11 letters long. Like his nickname as a kid was Ben 11 letters or something like that. So when he was getting into rock and roll, he knew he had to address that. So he shortened it to Orr, which is three letters. So the only reason me and John have the same last name is because like with his friends, my great grandfather's friends could not pronounce an Eastern European last name. When he was living in Canada, he finally had the opportunity to explore American rock music. He discovered American rock music by listening to, like, Armed Forces radio uh, when he was living in Europe. But now that he was in Toronto, he could pick up Canadian radio stations as well as some American radio stations, particularly out of Buffalo. It wasn't just rock and roll, but it was also, like, gospel music. So when he was very young, he was growing up listening to acts like Little Richard and Ray Charles. And he really connected to that music, not just because he enjoyed listening to music, but because this was really what was helping him learn how to speak English. He was an immigrant who still had real bad eyesight. So making friends was very tough for John. And it was particularly tough to learn a new language. So he did that by listening to songs on the radio, buying the records, and trying to keep up with what radio DJs were saying. Eventually he learned English just fine, and because he had relied so much on this music, he decided that this was something he wanted to do. He wanted to be involved with making music and playing music. So in 1963, he moved to Buffalo, and this was where he had an opportunity to expand his knowledge base about American music. And he did this by getting records from the library. And it wasn't just rock and roll, it was folk, country, blues, uh, I guess what you would call Americana, stuff like, I don't know, prison songs was, was something he mentioned in his book, all kinds of music. And that background 
gave him a solid footing to start his musical career. Now, the other thing he needed to do was get out of Buffalo. And he went out to where the music scene was really starting to kick off, and that was in Southern California, particularly L.A. Now, he moved out to L.A. with the ability to play a number of different genres. Like I said, folk, blues, rock. He could play solo acoustic. He was able to play in a band. And when he was out there, he started trying to book venues right away, and he did. And he played the same sort of venues as a a band like The Birds would play. That was a band he crossed paths with quite a bit. There's a really funny story in his book about John working at a music venue, and he was backstage using a loud espresso machine while David Crosby was on stage playing. And Crosby can hear the coffee machine going backstage, so he stops his performance, storms off stage, and threatens to beat the shit out of John (laughs) for using it. So when I read this, I immediately took a photo of the page and tweeted it at David Crosby. Crosby spends a lot of time on Twitter, and there's a good chance if you tweet at him, he'll respond. And sure enough, he responded, and he said that he remembered seeing John Kay back at that venue around that time, but he did not remember the story of wanting to fight him overly loud coffee machine, so that's sort of funny. Well, anyway... John eventually joined a band called The Sparrow in 1965, and The Sparrow is very much a not-quite-ready-for-prime-time version of Steppenwolf. I think the comp here would be like Grace Slick's first band, The Great Society. The Sparrow was like a warm-up group for Steppenwolf. In the same way Grace Slick recorded some of the Jefferson Airplane's biggest hits during her time with The Great Society, John Kay recorded a couple of songs with the Sparrow that would eventually be used on Steppenwolf records, including one of their most famous songs, uh, which was a cover of a song called The Pusher. The Pusher was written by Hoyt Axton, who is someone we will talk about again later in the episode. Hoyt Axton, if you didn't know, is a pretty famous songwriter and actor, and he's probably most famous for writing a bunch of Three Dog Night songs, including Joy to the World. Uh, Well, he wrote this song called The Pusher, and The Sparrow would cover it, and the most popular bit of their live show was this, like, really long extended jam session on The Pusher. They would drag this song out to be, like, 20 minutes long. And there's a story in John's book about Steve Miller going to see them for a concert and then joining them on stage during the jam session for this song. Because, again, Southern California in the early 60s, Steve Miller, along with Grace Slick and Janis Joplin and Carlos Santana and a number of other famous rock and roll stars were were out there around this time. Now, The Sparrow would burn itself out in 1967. They had a really hard time getting a record deal, and frankly, the songs just weren't good enough. The Pusher is a great song, but the 20-minute jam session might have worked in a live setting in San Francisco, but that wasn't really going to play on a record. So John and a couple of the other guys from Sparrow formed a new band, And they named it Steppenwolf because one of the guys in the band was reading a 1927 novel called Der Steppenwolf by author-poet Herman Hesse. I don't know anything about that book. John said he read it much later on and found some 
value to it so he's not unhappy with the name but it was like a lot of bands names they were sitting around in a room and finally they settled on one thing after shooting down a hundred other bad ideas hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds our family now has three pairs of raycon earbuds around the house and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So the first Steppenwolf album was released in January 1968, and it includes... The aforementioned The Pusher song, along with a bunch of blues covers. The third single, however, is of course their most famous hit, Born to be Wild. Born to be Wild was a number two hit on the charts. John had to fight with his label to get them to release that as a single. I guess the label wanted Born to be Wild to be the B-side. John wanted it to be the single, so they settled on not really identifying which one was the single and just sending it out to radio stations and having the radio stations pick which was the the better track. And, of course, everybody picked Born to be Wild. So I know you've heard it a hundred times already, but let's take a quick listen to a little bit of Born to be Wild and try and absorb it with fresh ears. Forget all the commercials and movies. Seriously, just, just focus on the musicianship of this and see if it hits you in the same way it did the first time you heard it. Born to be wild Born to be wild 
It is really a great song. I truly feel this is the quintessential 60s song. Now, the record it comes from, I wouldn't say is as essential as like the White Album or Beggar's Banquet, both of which are also 1968, but it is a really good 60s rock album. Now, their second album, appropriately titled The Second, was released in October 1968. So, very quick turnaround, very similar to what Credence was doing at this time and the big hit off of Steppenwolf the second is my favorite song of theirs Magic Carpet Ride well, you don't know what we can find why don't you come with me little girl on a magic carpet ride you don't know what we can see why don't you tell your dreams to me fantasy will set you free Magic Carpet Ride was a number three hit single on the charts like I said, it's my favorite Steppenwolf song. I think it's not just the cool feedback sound you get at the start of the song, an organ solo at the end. I really like the lyrics on this one. The lyrics that always stick out to me when I hear them is when he sings, I looked around, a lousy candle was all I found. I looked around, a lousy candle's all I found. Well, I don't know why. But that has always struck me as absolutely hilarious. It's just a really funny phrase, and I always get a kick out of it when I listen to this song. This isn't as overplayed with Born to be Wild, but it is definitely a favorite of classic rock stations, and I think justifiably so. This is a great song. Another iconic 60s moment. So right off the bat, two wild hits from their first two records. And their third most famous song, I would say, The Pusher, is, is on that first record. So commercially or at least in the way that they're remembered they really never reached these heights again unfortunately but that's not to say they didn't have stuff that was as good because they have a lot of great music coming up so the story's not over even though we've just talked about the two big hits let's talk about the rest of the second if i'm being honest mediocre record Outside of Magic Carpet Ride, there's a couple of highlights. I like the songs Don't Step on the Grass, Sam, and Hodgepodge, Strained Through a Leslie. Both are interesting titles. I would recommend checking out the songs before you judge them. Don't Step on the Grass in particular, because that song is a reaction to the 1960s right-wing media's demonization of marijuana. And we're going to get into this a little bit later, but Steppenwolf is a very political band, and this is one of the songs that sort of speaks to that. But truth be told, they are only just getting started with that one. So in John's book, which is titled Magic Carpet Ride, the autobiography of John Kay and Steppenwolf, he says, The album did very well out of the gate, but in the long run, it wasn't as strong as the first. It lacked direction, wasn't as aggressive, raw, or raunchy. I would say that's about spot on. Magic Carpet Ride is a great follow-up to Born to be Wild, but the album cuts here are, by and large, not as interesting as the deeper cuts on that first record. Unfortunately, their third album is another step down. It was called At Your Birthday Party. It was released in March 1969. Right off the bat, hilarious title for an album, and that will not be the last time I say this, <laughs> but it is not a particularly good record. And the reason for this is that it was the third album in barely over a year. The band was exhausted, and 
they were also starting to fight with each other a little bit because the other members in the band saw how much money John was making with the songwriting credits coming off of those two big hits, Born to be Wild and Magic Carpet Ride, and they wanted in on that. The problem is the songs they brought to John were not particularly impressive. And that's sort of why this whole record isn't very impressive. You can tell that they're burnt out. You can tell that they weren't getting along. John doesn't even sing on every track here. The single off the record is called Rock Me. It hit number 10 on the charts, and it was their final top 10 hit. I'm not going to play it because we honestly have a lot to get to. I'll just put it this way. I think John summed this up pretty well in the book when he referred to most of the songs on the record as, quote, a total waste of time. And he's right again, so I am not going to waste any more of time on that. Now, the failure of At Your Birthday Party was washed away pretty quick because the vehicle that would skyrocket Steppenwolf's success was released to theaters in July 1969. And that vehicle, of course, was a motorcycle. They're not scared of you. They're scared of what you represent to them. Amen. Oh, we represent to them, man, as somebody who needs a haircut. Oh, no. What you represent to them is freedom. What the hell's wrong with freedom, man? That's what it's all about. Easy Rider, which uses both Born to be Wild and The Pusher. Very early in the movie, I might add. And within a minute of each other. So if you've never seen Easy Rider and you just want to see those songs, well, you're in luck because... The Pusher is in a pre-title sequence, and Born to be Wild plays over the intro credits. Now, as it happens, I had never actually seen Easy Rider before I started research for this episode. So I watched it earlier this week, and I gotta say, I do like it. It's pretty great. Jack Nicholson's in it. It's beautifully shot. It's not just Steppenwolf. There's a ton of great music in this movie, and it's really easy to see why this was such a hit. And I I do find it very interesting because it was one of the first movies to feature a full rock soundtrack, putting it way ahead of its time because that would eventually become super common in the 80s. But this is 1969. So you got to give it to Dennis Hopper and the the, the people behind this movie for having um, the, the foresight to do something like that. And because of those intro credits, there is now a permanent association between Steppenwolf and Bikers. And that's a little funny because John K. does not ride a motorcycle. (laughs) Never did, and certainly doesn't now. And when he was approached to have his song in the movie, his interest was sort of mild. Like, he summed it up in the book by saying, Cool movie. Thanks for thinking of us. Send us the check. And that was sort of it. That was his attitude about the movie. Some of the other guys who had their songs on the soundtrack were really involved Bob Dylan famously refused to let them use a song because he didn't like how it was going to be used. John wasn't terribly concerned, and he certainly did not expect that it was going to put him at that level of fame or typecast him in the way that it did because the movie's success proved to be a double-edged sword in the long run. It was massively successful, which was great for the band, but it typecast Steppenwolf as like a biker band. And... Multiple times through the, his book, John refers to the movie as a, quote, straitjacket for the band. And ultimately, that's understandable because nothing in Steppenwolf's career would ever overshadow Easy Rider. 
Coming off the success of the movie, they released their fourth album, which was called Monster, in November 1969. And this was a concept album, which sounds about right. Fourth album, let's make it a concept record. Okay, sounds good. (laughs) And like I was saying earlier, this was an extension of the band being very political. It's a protest record, specifically about the Vietnam War, the rise in political corruption that was going on in the U.S. government, injustice in general, very much a hippie take on what was wrong with America. Sort of the, you know, what happened, man? All right, I'm being a little silly. So here's a clip from the title track, which is actually like nine minutes long, and it's sort of a medley of three titles. Monster, Suicide, America. So take a listen. Leaders were supposed to serve the country. single from the album called Move Over cracked the top 40 and righted the ship, if you will, for Steppenwolf as they were still coming off the failure of the Birthday Party album. This is obviously a better record than the previous one, but there is a song that sticks out like a sore thumb. It's an instrumental track called Fag, which is obviously a slur for gay men. Now, this is an instrumental track, and I'll say right off the bat, thank God there are no lyrics. I was caught way off guard by seeing the track listing on this, and I had to do a little research on why they would choose to name a song like that, given that this album is trying to make a political statement. Well, the story behind it is that it was a track written by the guitarist Larry Byram, and in November 2000, he told Swampland.com, It was Santa Monica Boulevard. It was written in the mind with the gay crowd and was sort of something that described the way they walked. Part of our scene was cruising the streets to look for chicks and going down to the troubadour and hearing the new acts that were coming in. However, in time, Santa Monica Boulevard became a gay center. After getting hit on a couple of times because I was a good-looking young man, I just said, this is bullshit. So I wrote a song about it. Going back to what I said earlier, thank God there are no lyrics. (laughs) But this is sort of a airheaded explanation. I mean, I believe his story, and I don't think it is overly malicious. I think it's very clueless. It sounds like he intended it to be humorous and kind of cheeky, but comedy often ages badly, and this has absolutely aged horribly. And like I said, it sticks out like a sore thumb on an otherwise good record. It's an ugly mark on one of their better records, and I think it undercuts the album's attempt to be serious. The album was attempting to be a thought-provoking protest record about America as a whole. That is a pretty big task, and putting a stupid little joke song with a title that is a slur is a great way to throw someone off. So throwing this song on there I think really undercuts what they were trying to do. It's a stupid song, horrible title. It's a shame it played out like that. I don't think that Larry Byram is like a bad dude or anything. He was a southern guy who obviously had some culture shock moving out to California in this era. Still a very conservative time. 
and he was caught a little off guard and he dealt with it by writing a song of course this isn't a justification but like we have to keep in mind the context of when it was written and as far as john goes i would guess he's a little embarrassed by it because in his book he talks about almost every steppenwolf song at some point or another he doesn't mention this one at all and for what it's worth in a different section of the book when referring to some friends of one of his bandmates he states quote i didn't have any problems with homosexuality or bisexuality and he's always been a very progressive considerate guy so i don't think there's any true homophobia in this band again i think it was one of their guys wrote a stupid little joke song and they didn't think it would age as badly as it did unfortunately that's not how it played out okay moving on their fifth album inappropriately titled steppenwolf 7 was released in november 1970 and this record is one of their better ones they were really proud of this one uh, one of the tracks here is called renegade and it was the first song that john wrote about his extremely tumultuous childhood being born in east germany and you know escaping to canada and eventually america and all that another track on the record was written by hoyt axton who was that guy i was talking about earlier who also wrote the pushers so i'll play a clip of that song which is called Snowblind Friend. He said he wanted heaven, but praying was too slow. So he bought a one-way ticket on an airline made of snow. Did you say you saw the good friend flying low? Flying low down snow. Yeah, it's another good song. I will talk about this one again in a little bit, so put a pin in this song for now. Steppenwolf 7 was a mild success. They were very proud of it, and with this momentum, they were able to renegotiate their record deal, so they were in a pretty good place in 1971. Unfortunately, with all this good momentum going into 1971, they sort of crashed and burned with the record they put out. For Ladies Only was released in November 1971, another hilarious title for a half-hearted album. To quote John's book, our weakest album since At Your Birthday Party. And that is spot on. For Ladies Only was another attempt at a concept record. And the concept here was that it was supposed to be written with a women's perspective. And the band felt really good about this concept. But fortunately, they totally failed in execution. I'll play a single from the song. This is called Ride With Me. So yeah, this is really uninspired. To me, it feels like a retread, and obviously this record needed a lot more work, especially if they wanted it to be a proper concept record. But the reality was this band was burnt out. They were also sort of out of ideas. I mean, even the concept for the record was not really fleshed out. In John's book, he writes, my songwriting had dried up at that point, and I was running out of ideas. That is very apparent here. And because of all these factors, the album was a dud. And to make matters worse, when they went out on tour, the audiences were often bored by the new material. Their label was becoming more and more disinterested in promoting them. Uh, basically, the band was running on fumes. And after their tour in summer 1971, John was completely exhausted and decided to retire Steppenwolf. 
Is this the end of Steppenwolf? Find out after the break. I know that's kind of shitty, but like, look, this is the first segment of a three-segment podcast. It's not the end of Steppenwolf's story, obviously, but it is a good point for a break. So let's go to a segment that looks at some recent headlines in the world of classic rock. This is called Yesterday's News. So like much of last year, our top story in my classic rock newspaper comes from the obituaries. Tawny Katane dies at age 59, way too young. Tawny Katane is an iconic figure of 80s metal. She is the model on Rats Out of the Cellar album. That's her right there. And she was in the music video for their song Back for More. And she's even more famous for being the woman dancing on the hood of David Coverdale's car in White Snake's music video for Here I Go Again. She's also in White Snake's music videos for Still of the Night and Is This Love, i.e., all of White Snake's biggest hits. Now, her connections to two of these bands is obviously romantic. In the early 80s, she was dating Robin Crosby from Rant. And after they split, she started dating and eventually married David Coverdale from Whitesnake in the late 80s. Now, because of these connections, she really needs to be remembered as an important part of classic rock. Because she is instrumental to both of those band's stories. She was there at basically the apexes of both of those band's careers. But beyond her classic rock connections, her story gets arguably even more interesting. In the 90s, she dated Jon Stewart from The Daily Show. That was incredible to find out. Unfortunately, all the interesting stuff is not necessarily positive. Uh, in the 80s, she had a pretty infamous affair with O.J. Simpson. So that's a yikes. And in her last interview she did before she died, she had revealed that also in the 80s, she had gone on a couple of dates with another monster. Harvey Weinstein, of all people. My God. So definitely some bad with the good. And of course, if you read TMZ's write-up of her passing, you'll see that she had DUIs and, and drug arrests, and that's because she had a life of extreme ups and downs. She struggled with depression throughout her whole life, but she wasn't officially diagnosed until 2019. She talked about that um, on her YouTube channel. Now, the cause of her death has not been confirmed at this point. The police have said they don't suspect any foul play. They don't think it was suicide or drugs or an overdose or anything. And the only comment about what it could have been came from her brother, and he suggested that she died of a broken heart because their father had also recently passed away. And I guess she had an extremely close relationship with her father. And you, you see a little bit of that when she would tell stories on her YouTube channel. She had a YouTube show called Tawny's Take in, in these recent years. And I watched a couple of those earlier this week, and I do remember one where she talks about how her father bailed her out of a, a, a bad situation she was in. And it was very clear that she has a, a lot of love for him, but died of a broken heart, not really an actual you know, cause of death. So um, what actually happened with her, uh, we just don't know at this point. 
But if you want to learn more about the person, Tawny Katane, or if you're a fan of hers and you miss her already, I would really recommend, more than anything else, her YouTube series, Tawny's Take. Very candid videos where she answered questions and or, or talked about stuff that was just going on in her life. Um, it wasn't always uplifting. There's some heavy stuff in there. Uh, I found a video, and I posted this on our, our Facebook page about... Um, how she talked about struggling with depression and how that really affected her life. So you know what? I'll, I'll play a quick clip of that. Yes, I'm a person who is depressed. I have depression. I've had it my entire life, but I never really knew it until this year when I finally spoke out and spoke up and told somebody and said, <laughs> I've been dealing with something that I've been hiding for a long time because I, my life seems so perfect and I don't want anybody to know that I'm depressed. Because people look and they go, yeah, you got this, you've got that, you look like that, you've got this, you're married to this person, you drive this, you just, how, can you be, how can you be depressed? Well, you can be. Another thing that we learned from Tawny's take was that she apparently did not stay on good terms with David Coverdale after they divorced. She had a crazy tabloid story divorce from her second husband, Chuck Finley, the baseball player. But they eventually reconciled. They had a way crazier divorce than her and Coverdale. But I guess she never reconciled with Coverdale. And in September 2019, she went on a little bit of a rant about David because she found a video of him lamenting how horrible she had made the divorce for him. So take a listen to this. And he was talking about this horrible, horrific divorce that he was going through. And I was like, are you kidding me? I wasn't even at the divorce. I sent my attorneys. I didn't do anything. I wasn't even there. I wanted the divorce. I sent the attorneys to take care of it. And then I never, never talked to him again after that. And he went through a terrible, horrible divorce, making it sound like I was just a pain in the butt. No, David, you were a pain in the butt. You were the narcissistic idiot that I freaking helped make a ton of money. Because after those videos, did anybody ever hear of you again? No, I don't think so. So now that's off my shoulders. You can go to hell. I swear to God, that was such bullshit, David. Such bullshit. Anyway. So I like this clip because, personally, I find David Coverdale to be a little insufferable. He's been on a big charm offensive the last couple of years, and I think that's because he's trying to sell, like, a bunch of records all at once. I think he was selling, like, three different records last year. And if you follow him on Twitter, it is straight, like, boomer humor honestly he's the type of guy to share minion memes <laughs> and you know on top of everything else i saw a white snake back in 2015 and it takes a lot to get a bad concert review out of me i most of the bands i see are long past their primes and and that normally does not bother me but white snake sucked and white snake sucked specifically because of david coverdale so like i don't know there's something a little phony about him and I think Tawny's comments speak to that a little bit. And we might have heard more about that because Tawny was in the process of writing her memoirs when she passed away. 
And that's just another factor that adds to the sadness here because Tawny Katane's memoirs would have been fascinating. I really hope her estate finds some way to put some form of it out there because she had a fascinating story and it deserves to be heard from her perspective. As a classic rock fan, I really have a lot of appreciation for women like her because they have great stories and perspectives that need to be included in the greater history of classic rock. Think of all the great stuff we've learned about because of authors like Pamela DeBar, Bobby Brown, uh, Carrie Stevens and her book, Unrated, Kristen Casey, who I interviewed last year about her book. These are great stories, and I love these type of books because these women tend to be much more candid and realistic about what actually happened. It's important for us as classic rock fans to not just accept every legend at face value. I mean, if there's another perspective on an artist or story that we're interested in or a fan of, then we owe it to like that fandom to seek it out and get all signs. So for among a myriad of reasons, that is absolutely tragic that Tawny Katane has passed away, um, most likely missing out on her memoirs is a particularly painful aspect, but hopefully her family and the estate will find some way of getting what she's written out there. So since we have a lot to talk about today, I'm just going to do one more news story. Genesis. The Genesis Reunion Tour is back on track and coming to the United States this fall, and I have tickets for opening night at the United Center in Chicago. I recently spoke about this to Paul Stevenson on The Vintage Rock Pod. I would recommend you check that out. It was his first Friday zine episode of the show, which I really recommend. It was the second time I was a guest on that show. So it was very cool to talk to Paul about that and about the return of concerts at large. I already have a full summer and fall planned out of great classic rock shows. And by the way, I'm going to be posting quick hit concert reviews of all of the shows I'm attending on my YouTube and Facebook pages. So be sure to follow me there. I'm particularly excited about Genesis because their guitarist, Daryl Sturmer, is a Wisconsin native, like me, and my brother and I saw him in concert twice back in 2016. He was doing a Genesis tribute show, and even that was awesome. So I, I can't tell you how excited I am. I hope there are shows out there that you're excited to see. I hope you're all vaccinated and staying safe and getting ready to get back out there and see live music because we have been starved for it for like a year and a half now so i'm i'm sick of this i i want to see live shows again and genesis will not be the first show i see live but it will be the one i am most looking forward to this year so more on that coming later okay with that let's get back to the main story Okay, so obviously Steppenwolf didn't actually end 
1971, but they had been through a lot in just four years, and they needed a break. They needed some time away from each other. And this would be a theme in Steppenwolf's story. This would be the first of several times that John would, quote, retire Steppenwolf. So in this case, John just really needed some time away from the rest of the guys in the band. He wanted to produce music that wasn't necessarily in Steppenwolf's wheelhouse. He wanted to return more to his roots, and that's what he did with his debut solo album, which he released in 1972 called Forgotten Songs and Unsung Heroes. This is a very personal record for John. It's a passion project for sure, and it's John rediscovering his roots. It's a lot of covers of old blues songs. To quote his book, he writes, The Forgotten Songs album was more the result of my folk, country, and country blues influences than rock and roll. And just to give you a little taste of that solo album, here's a cool song from it. It was the single called I'm Moving On. So I'm moving on. like this. I mean, it, to be honest, it sounds a little bit like Steppenwolf, so it wasn't that big of uh, a divergence from the band. I mean, it's just because John's voice is such a critical part of Steppenwolf that the Steppenwolf sound seems to go wherever his, his vocals do. So he promoted this album in a particularly bizarre way. There was a promoter in Europe who offered him a lot of money to put Steppenwolf back together, and he said, well, no, the band's over. So the promoter said, okay, well, how about you call it a farewell tour here in Europe? And John thought, well, it is a lot of money. I do have a new album out. And he said, okay, I will do it if I can also play as the opening act with the John K Band. And I can uh, promote my new album that way. And then the promoter was fine with that. So the summer after they split up, Steppenwolf got right back together for a European tour. And John, with his new band also opened for Steppenwolf. This is weird and obviously not a good idea. (laughs) It was absolutely exhausting for John and very confusing for fans, and it did not work out for him. The album did not sell very well. And when he got back to the States and he started work on his second solo album, which would be called My Sportin' Life, released in 1973, another great title, he dissolved the John K. Band. He did not want to continue performing uh, with that particular lineup, and he put this solo album together with strictly session musicians. This album is much more of a polished project for a pop approach, and I'm going to play the song he wanted to release as a single in 1973. I'm going to play a clip of that, see if you recognize it. Give me the beat, boys, free my soul. I want to get lost in the rock and roll. If you can believe it, this was actually recorded shortly before Dobie Gray recorded his version, which would go on to be a massive hit. The story here is that John recorded his cover and he wanted to release it as a single, but his label sort of hemmed and hawed and they weren't sure if they wanted to put it out as a single and they weren't sure when they wanted to put it out. And they basically put it on ice for like a couple months. And in that time, Dobie Gray recorded his version and released it. So it got out first, became a smash hit, and of course, wiped out any chance for John to have a hit with it that year. 
This was, understandably, infuriating for John, and he felt that the label had basically torpedoed his solo career. They didn't promote him on the first record, and they really didn't have plans to promote him on the second one, and this kind of dicking around with a song that clearly became a big hit for somebody else left him very upset with that label. And the reason why they treated him like this is because the label wanted him to put Steppenwolf back together. They didn't really want John K. solo projects. They wanted Steppenwolf albums. Seeing that his solo career wasn't really going anywhere, and keeping in mind that he actually enjoyed the company of the guys in Steppenwolf during that European tour, John decided it was time to put Steppenwolf together, but he would absolutely not do it on that same label that treated him so badly. So he did reunite the band, and it took him a while to get a new record deal. But they eventually did, and that album was called Slow Flux, which was released in August 1974. Here is the single from that album called Straight Shooting Woman. I got me a straight shooting woman She's right on Straight Shootin' Woman hit number 29 on the Billboard charts, and this was the last time Steppenwolf had a single land in the top 100. It was a much-needed hit for the band, as it was sort of their comeback record. And as a whole, Slow Flux is a pretty good record, particularly the first half. This record has a couple of strong opening tracks, so if you're looking for a deeper cut in Steppenwolf's discography, this is not a bad one to check out. About a year after that, they released their eighth album called Hour of the Wolf, which was released in September 1975. There's a couple of tracks on there I like, one called Two for the Love of One and another one called Hard Rock Road. This isn't a particularly great record, but like I said, a couple of decent tracks. I'll just play a quick clip of the first couple of moments from a song called Someone Told a Lie. I think this is a really cool intro, so check this out. Isn't that fun? That's pretty cool, right? I don't have a whole lot to say about this record. It wasn't particularly well-received, didn't really sell. In the grand scheme of Steppenwolf's discography, it's not one of the stronger ones, but it kept him going. Now, just a few months later, they released their ninth album, which was called Skullduggery. Great title for a hard rock 70s album. This was released in January 1976. Unfortunately, this one had some of the same challenges that For Ladies Only had. We're talking about disinterest from the label, band burnout, writer's block, old issues that they had experienced before just five years ago. But now added was that John, who had been married this whole time, he was getting particularly homesick and he was missing his wife and his daughter was starting to grow up without him and that was very painful for him. So they sort of rushed this album out. And in his book... John says, the album lacked enthusiasm and conviction. It was watered down. Now, if I'm being honest, I don't think it's all that much better or worse than the last two we talked about. There's a cool instrumental on here called Lip Service. Uh, that's the closing track. I think that's worthwhile. And here's a clip from another song that I like called Life is a Gamble. Take a listen to this. Life is a gamble, where you search and you ramble. 
not bad, but again, nothing to write home about. Like we saw with For Ladies Only, the band was burnt out, the label didn't know what to do with them, wasn't really promoting them, and John just wasn't in a good way. So, like in 1971, the band split up in 1976. Now, along with quitting the band in 1976, John also quit drugs altogether and a lot of that rock and roll hedonism that he had absolutely been enjoying during his years with the band. Steppenwolf was, by and large, not a sober group. They had a couple of guys that didn't touch anything, but uh, they also had another couple of guys who got way too into drugs and alcohol, and John sort of straddled both groups. He was sort of a moderating factor, but he definitely did his fair share. But starting in 76, I think he turned 30 around here, him and his wife quit most of that and wanted to uh, basically spend time as a family raising their daughter. Unfortunately, this would be derailed after a couple of years because a combination of a series of bad investments with no work put John in pretty bad financial shape. He put out a solo album called All In Good Time in 1978. This album is definitely more rock and roll than his previous solo albums. I think he was hoping to get uh, some radio success, but that just didn't pan out. There's a song on here called Business Is Business. I do like that one, so I'll play a quick clip of that. Business is Pretty much par for the course with what John and Steppenwolf have put out in the past, and this project did not improve John's financial status. So he was starting to feel the heat as the 70s was winding down to a close. Now to make matters worse, Steppenwolf would actually get back out on the road. Not John Kay's Steppenwolf, not the actual Steppenwolf, but at least one, and as many as three, bogus bands calling themselves Steppenwolf and playing Steppenwolf songs would form in 1979 and start to get booked in the venues that the actual Steppenwolf would play. Since this is way before the internet, I guess it was way easier to convince venues and promoters that you were the real deal. Now the story here is that as bad as John was doing financially, his ex-bandmates were doing much worse. And a couple of shady fly-by-night promoters convinced the ex-members of Steppenwolf to sign over their rights to the name to basically a cover group. This cover group would then claim to have rights to the name and play various venues. And because these were real shady practices, the guys in these bands were not reliable artists. And these bands would inevitably perform poorly and break contracts, and in a very short amount of time, these bogus bands effectively trashed Steppenwolf's reputation. Now, John and another guy in Steppenwolf were absolutely furious uh, about these bands going out as Steppenwolf, and of course, uh, started legal action right away. 
but because of how long the American justice system is, uh, his lawyers told him it would be quite a while before they would be able to get these other artists off the road. So in an effort to both run these other bands off the road and also work to restore Steppenwolf's reputation and legacy, John put a new lineup together and started going out on the road in 1980 as John Kay and Steppenwolf. And for several years, he would tour what he calls the toilet venues <laughs> to slowly but surely repair the band's reputation and exert ownership over the band's name. To his credit, he took that anger and he turned it into determination. And he learned some very valuable lessons about perseverance and humility during these struggles in the early 80s. And he would then take those lessons and apply them to records we'll talk about in a little bit and really get some great music out of it. And this was a strategy that worked. And given that these fake, bogus Steppenwolf bands were made up of shady fly-by-night guys, they inevitably broke contracts and put on really bad performances and word about them being fake got out and the law caught up to them and legally they were eventually all barred from performing in that way and John eventually got full rights to the name Steppenwolf. But it would take him a very long time to get his version of Steppenwolf out of the lousy small venues and back onto the big stages that he was used to. So after a couple of years of touring these so-called toilet venues, John released an album called Wolf Tracks in 1982. Given that he had limited financial resources, he had very little studio time to put this project together, so this album was very rushed and it shows. They produced it themselves, and I'll tell you, this is not a great album. It largely sounds like unfinished demos. In his book, John said he was disappointed with it. I think he just really wanted to get something on record because it had been a while since he had been in the studio, and now that he was back out on the road, he was performing some new songs he had written, and he wanted a product to sell. But because of the production, this one is one of the few in Steppenwolf's discography that I say is really not worth checking out. I'll play the one interesting song off of that. See if you recognize this. Yeah, so that's a cover of Hold Your Head Up, which was originally by Argent. That's a great song, and honestly, the cover isn't that bad, except for the production. It's got a very cheap, chintzy-sounding production, and it's hard not to notice that. But I have to think he selected covering this song because, like, that was the mentality he was in. Like, you're going through a lot, this is going to be a struggle, but you got to be in for the long haul. Hold your head up. A couple years after that, he released... His next album, which was called Paradox in 1984, this is a big improvement. It has a much more contemporary 80s sounding production, which is definitely a step up from the last album. Honestly, this is his best work since Slow Flux. So here's a clip of my favorite song for the record. This is called Give Me Some News I Can Use. Give me some news I can use. Let me smile for a while. 
is thematically similar to Don Henley's Dirty Laundry. There's a couple of songs I can think of in the 80s that are sort of uh, criticizing the media. Now, the problem for this record is that no label in the U.S. was interested in it. So they had to put it out on a very small Canadian label, and its success was extremely limited. I wouldn't be surprised if he sold more albums off the merch table than he did in the stores, simply based on distribution. I mean, all of his 80s albums are actually, sadly, pretty hard to find, even today. And it was because they never got big U.S. releases. They were all released on small Canadian labels. So although the two albums he had recently put out weren't really selling, the touring he was doing was finally starting to pay off. In 1985, Steppenwolf enjoyed a very successful co-headlining tour with The Guess Who. And shortly after that, Steppenwolf was booked to play Farm Aid 2 in 1986 and Farm Aid 3 in 1987. In his book, John said that these were two of the best moments in his entire career. It was a gigantic stage for a great cause that he was sharing alongside of his peers. In a lot of ways, it was validation. The grind he had been on since 1980 was finally starting to pay off. Steppenwolf was back. He was getting proper venues. There was a little buzz about him going on in the music industry. He had a good reputation as a touring act and took all that momentum and he put out Steppenwolf's 12th album in 1987 called Rock and Roll Rebels. This is a great record. One of my favorites. In fact, I would say if their first album didn't have Born to be Wild on it, this would be my favorite Steppenwolf record. It's got some great heavy guitars all the way through it. Sonically, it really reminds me of Boston's third stage album, which was put out just a year before this one. And thematically, most of the songs here are written about the struggles that he went through in the previous decade. And they're about perseverance and determination. It's very inspirational stuff, and I'll play probably the best song here. This is called Hold On, Never Give Up, Never Give In. Yeah, this is a really good song and the title track on this record is also really good like i said easily one of my favorite Steppenwolf albums and frankly if this had been on a proper u.s label and had gotten appropriate support i think this could have been a big hit i talked about this when my buddy kyle came on the show for the beer tasting so many 60s artists had a big resurgence in the late 80s grateful dead tina turner John Fogarty, Roy Orbison, George Harrison, Aretha Franklin. Steppenwolf absolutely could have been one of those acts. Had Rock and Roll Rebels been promoted appropriately, had he been able to make a music video, it's so frustrating that that just didn't come to pass because he absolutely deserved it. Rock and Roll Rebels is one of the great lost gems of classic rock in the late 80s and if you like 80s rock this is a must-have I don't know that it's gonna be easy to find but 
I'm sure it's streaming. It's on YouTube. I just really recommend this album, whether you're new to Steppenwolf or not. Because even if you're not new to Steppenwolf, there's a good chance you never heard this stuff. Because, again, uh, it's so hard to find. You're never going to find this in a record shop, unfortunately. So a couple of years later, he would follow this up with Rise and Shine, which was released in 1990. He was inspired to write this record because... In 1989, the Berlin Wall came down. And that wall represents a big factor in John's early life. If John's mother had not been able to smuggle him into West Germany, his life would have been entirely different. He never would have become a rock star. He could have been fully blind before he was even an adult. And God knows what... A person with a disability's life would be in East Germany immediately after World War II. Like, it could have been absolutely dire. And all these years later, John had really never considered it very much, and he never really thought about it. So when he was watching the Berlin Wall come down on TV, this had a tremendous emotional effect on him. And he channeled those emotions into this Rise and Shine album including a song on here called, appropriately, The Wall. Take a listen. I saw the moon crossings, saw the bloody stains, saw the gruesome pictures of all the ones that died in vain. So it should come as no surprise that this is one of the albums that John is most proud of, along with Steppenwolf's debut and Steppenwolf 7. I'm right there with him. This is a great record. This is one of my favorites as well, except uh, it's alongside the debut in Rock and Roll Rebels. Top three album for sure. And the only unfortunate thing about it is that this was Steppenwolf's last album. So I think we're at another good point to take a break. We're going to go to a segment that takes a look back at some of the biggest classic rock events from 30, 40, 50 years ago. This is a segment called Back in Time. But before we get to that, I'm going to play one last clip from this Rise and Shine album. This is a song about the Vietnam War. It's called Rock and Roll War. I made it home, but I'm still in ago in May 1971 Joy to the World by Three Dog Night was a number one hit single for over a month. This is just a great song from a great band. Now the interesting thing about this song is if you were paying attention earlier I mentioned this was one of the famous songs written by Hoyt Axton. 
Hoyt, he's the guy who wrote The Pusher. And the crazy thing about this song is that Steppenwolf had a chance to cover it instead of Three Dog Night. What happened was they were offered two songs from Hoyt. This one and another one that I played earlier called Snowblind Friend. Snowblind Friend was written about a guy who had passed away from a drug overdose. And that guy happened to be a friend of both John and Hoyt's. So considering the song was written by a friend of his, about a different friend of his, John felt it was more appropriate for Steppenwolf to cover Snowblind Friend instead of the much more radio-friendly Joy to the World, which went to Three Dog Night, and they had the biggest of their career. I don't think John regrets passing on this song, but it is interesting to think about what Steppenwolf's version would have been. All right, right around that same time, May 12th, Mick Jagger marries Bianca de Marcias. I probably butchered her name just now. <laughs> this is Mick Jagger's only actual marriage. Keep in mind that his famous marriage to Jerry Hall was very fake. That was not actually a binding agreement. Mick and Bianca were married for about seven, eight years, and they divorced in 1978 because Bianca discovered that Mick had been cheating on her with the aforementioned Jerry Hall. I think what's interesting about this relationship dynamic is that Bianca would go on to have a long career in activism and social justice after she and Mick split, but all that work is totally overshadowed by this relatively short-lived marriage. I think Bianca's a very interesting individual. There's all kinds of stories in various Stone's biographies, but her career of activism should not be overshadowed by that stuff. She did a lot of good work in the years after she split from Mick. Okay, let's fast forward a couple of decades. May 24th and 25th, 1991, Guns N' Roses launched their massive Use Your Illusion tour at Alpine Valley in East Troy, Wisconsin. This would be their final appearance in Wisconsin until their Not In This Lifetime reunion show at the Bradley Center in Milwaukee in 2017. I attended that show, and I only bring this tour debut up because the Use Your Illusion tour was an infamously disastrous tour, and I just wonder if that should be a future episode of mine like I did for Aerosmith's 2009 tour. If you're curious about that, post a comment and let me know, and we'll see if I can get that on the docket. All right, let's move forward another couple of decades. May 9th, 2011. Lady Gaga releases The Edge of Glory as a single, which features the big man Clarence Clements on the sax. This was the third single from Lady Gaga's Born This Way album. Clarence passed away on June 18th, 2011, which was while The Edge of Glory was still charting and being played regularly on the radio. It had been Clarence's first top five hit since Springsteen and the E Street Band put out Glory Days all the way back in 1985. So, of course, it was sad that Clarence passed away in 2011, but there is something very beautiful and poetic about him having current music being played on the radio in his final days. So, in memoriam and in tribute to the big man, Clarence Clements, playing sax up in heaven, here is his solo on Lady Gaga's The Edge of Glory. Yeah. 
totally see Bruce belting this one back in his arena tour heyday. I have to think that's why Gaga wanted Clarence, because this totally has a Springsteen vibe to it if you replaced all the pop production with E Street rock and roll. And honestly, after Clarence died, I really wish that Bruce would have covered this song. Like he covered Rebel Rebel when Bowie died and Take It Easy when Glenn Fry died. But I digress. Anyway, let's get back to the main story. Into the 90s. In 1994, John launched Wolf Fest, which was an annual pseudo-convention, pseudo-private concert that happened in Nashville and was only open to Steppenwolf fan club members. This was designed specifically for his hardcore fan base and basically meant as a thank you for their loyalty and support during those very lean years of the early 80s. This was a great tradition that would go on through 2002, and they had some cameras set up at that one, and shortly after that they released something called The Last Wolf Fest on VHS. In 2001, John Kay would release his final solo record. This was called Heretics and Privateers. Much like his first solo album, this is a return to his roots. A lot of blues, there's some acoustic music here. And ultimately, I think it was a really good note to go out on. There's a couple of good songs here. I'm going to play one called For the Women in My Life. And I think this song finally makes good on the concept he had back in 1971 for the for ladies only album for his family, very genuine, very heartfelt, and that's a lot of the music you can find on this record, so I would recommend this as well. In 2000, they released their Live in Louisville CD DVD. Both of those are great. If you like live albums, I would check those out. A couple of years later, John and his wife founded the Malkay Foundation in 2004. This foundation was meant to be the vehicle for John's activism. The foundation would exist to support individuals and organizations engaged in the protection of the wildlife, the environment, and human rights. The Mao Cave Foundation is still a huge part of John's life, and this activism is really what drives him. And this is what motivated him to stay involved with Steppenwolf, as over time he would basically funded this organization through his regular touring as Steppenwolf. He considered retiring Steppenwolf again in 2007, but he would restart the band in 2009, now with a severely reduced touring schedule, and also with the priority of funding his new foundation. Now, the band officially retired for the last time in 2018. Despite how many times he's quit and come back in the past, I don't think there's going to be any more reunions after this one. 2018 was shortly after Steppenwolf's 50th anniversary, and there was a lot of finality around that anniversary. They put out a three-disc CD, and it seemed like a very strong note to go out on. Since then, John has still made himself available to perform solo and he's done a select few dates according to his website it looks like he's going to 
keep touring here and there for the foreseeable future, a couple of dates a year. So there are still opportunities to see him perform solo. And one thing that I'm sure he'll be focusing on this year is a documentary he released earlier in 2021 called Born to be Wild, From Rockstar to Wildlife Advocate. Basically, this is going to be a documentary about his life story, how he got into music, and then how he eventually transitioned into this new passion of wildlife preservation. I haven't seen it yet, but I will be soon. It's available now for just 15 bucks. So if you're interested in supporting a good cause, I recommend this. John does a lot of good work, and a lot of it is coordinating and helping to fund other great organizations. So a donation there goes a long way. And if you're on the fence about it, maybe just buy this movie he's got out and see if that pulls you in. So I saw Steppenwolf in concert once, but before I get to that, I want to tell one story about a different show I saw. In 2008, on my 20th birthday, I went along with my dad to Harley Davidson's 105th anniversary concert, which was held on the lakefront in Milwaukee. And they had booked Bruce Springsteen to play the show. And this was the first time I ever saw Springsteen. And he did one of his famous three-plus-hour shows. And at the very end of the night, on, like, his third encore, he came back out on stage, and he played the song Most Appropriate for a Biker Crowd. What else? Born to be Wild. Here, take a listen to this. You can't leave without this one, I guess. Yeah. I hope we know it. That's just awesome. It totally blew my mind when he played it that night. Easily one of my favorite shows ever. Now, I didn't get to see Steppenwolf until 2015, which was at the Wisconsin State Fair. Lou Graham from Foreigner was supposed to open, but his set got rained out. In fact, the weather was pretty lousy all day. Steppenwolf didn't come on until a little bit later, but that wasn't bad. The only downside about the weather is that I think it scared away uh, some of the people who were going to go to that show because they did not play to a full house. That said, it was a really good show. I only knew the big hits when I bought tickets to see them, and I left wanting to hear more of their music. I will say one of the funnier moments from the show was when they played their political song, Monster. And while they were playing that song, the video screens showed stock footage of famous news events from World War II up to current time. And as it's starting to progress into the 80s and into the 90s, I think to myself, oh man, they showed Vietnam War footage. Are they going to show 9-11? And I went with my buddy Kyle, who was here for the beer tasting. And in very poor taste, uh, I leaned over to him and I said, 10 bucks says they show 9-11. <laughs> because we didn't think they were actually going to show that. Because, you know, it's this is a rock concert, whatever. But And sure enough, yeah, they showed 9-11. <laughs> <laughs> like a close-up of the plane hitting it. I sort of felt it was in bad taste a little bit, but Monster 
is about America. That's that concept record. So it's meant to be thought-provoking, and there's issues on there that are absolutely relevant today. So, I mean, I know why they included it. It was just sort of a bizarre little moment that I felt was a little out of place at a rock show. But I might be alone on this. So that was the only time I saw Steppenwolf in concert. But I do have one little funny thing to share here. I guess John is doing some house cleaning because last year, John put some of Steppenwolf's old contracts on the website so you could buy, like, their copies of old contracts for shows they played in the past. I thought this was hilarious, and I immediately bought the one for a show they did in Milwaukee, and I didn't even realize what it was until I got it. This was actually for Harley Davidson's 90th anniversary concert which was on june 12th 1993 at the summerfest grounds here in milwaukee 15 years before springsteen played born to be wild on the stage for the bikers john kane steppenwolf were the real deal in 1993 and played for that audience as well so i'll read just a couple of things off this contract here artist to perform one show approximately 60 minutes in length compensation agreed upon fifteen thousand dollar guarantee 15 grand, 1993. That is not bad. (laughs) This was for a 5,000 seat venue, and the event was officially called 90th Birthday Harley Davidson Fest. I get a kick out of the contact info on this is Bob Babish. Bob Babish is the same guy who does Summerfest today, so he has been doing that job for quite a while and doing a great job at it, too. So, fun little thing there. I don't know if they're still up, but you could check out Steppenwolf's website and buy some old-fashioned contracts. All right, getting a little slap-happy here at the end, so let's wrap this up. Going back to what I started this show off with saying, Born to be Wild is the quintessential 60s song. It hits a chord that no other artist was able to do in quite the same way, you know? The only song that sort of comes close, I think, is My Generation by The Who, but no, it's not quite the same. Born to be Wild is in a class of its own. All that said, Born to be Wild is not the only interesting thing about Steppenwolf. It's not even the most interesting thing. If you like Born to be Wild, there's a whole band behind it that produced a tremendous amount of fantastic music. Now, as important as Born to be Wild is, the Steppenwolf story doesn't really get interesting until long after Born to be Wild had been a hit. There is a lot of great music in their discography. This is a terribly overlooked band. Honestly, I think they belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. At the very least, John does. And then finally, once again, I'd just like to say I really think you should check out and consider donating to the Mao K Foundation. What John's doing now is really good work and... It's obviously a a big passion for him, so if you have some money that you're able to uh, set aside for charity, I think this is a good organization you should look into and consider. That is going to do it for me today. We got through a heck of a lot, so I'm glad you stuck with me. I really hope you found some music you want to explore. I love this band, and I think, given the chance, any rock and roll fan would love this group too. So hopefully we touched on something that... Uh, struck your interest so the next episode i will be putting out will be the first of my bob dylan series with my buddy chris who joined me for the heaven's door whiskey sampling and after that i'm putting the final touches on booking some interviews the intro song for this podcast is i can play that rock and roll with joe walsh i would like to both cite and recommend john k's memoirs 
Magic Carpet Ride, the autobiography of John Kay and Steppenwolf, particularly the 2020 edition. If you can't get that, then get the original run copy of the book. It was originally put out, I believe, in like 1994, so it covers the bulk of John's music and career, and it's one of the best rock and roll memoirs I've ever read, and I've read a lot, so that's uh, a good compliment coming for me. So if you're interested in a good memoir, check out Magic Carpet Ride. I would like to say thank you to Mr. Michael DeBar for providing the cameo I played at the start of today's episode. That's always a little bit fun. And then I'd like you to remember the big four ways that you can support this show that cost you absolutely nothing. Number one, listen to this show. If you're at this point, you already did it. Thank you. Two, if you enjoyed this show, please recommend it to family, friends, anyone you know who's a rock and roll fan. Post us in subreddits or recommendation threads, anywhere that someone is looking for a podcast, particularly one about music. Three, find us on social media. Follow us at PlayThatPodcast on Twitter. Like Facebook.com slash PlayThatPodcast. And subscribe to YouTube.com slash C slash PlayThatRockNRoll. And finally, the big ask. Please give us a good rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. I hate to acknowledge metrics and the algorithm, but seriously, giving us a even just a good rating helps this show get in front of people that might be interested in it. But we need those ratings to be a stand-in for word of mouth, so if uh, you can just take a moment to do that, it would mean a great deal to me. You will make my day, I promise. So, if you can, thank you very much. Otherwise, that's it. Thanks for coming by. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you listening. So to play us out, here's the title track from the Rock and Roll Rebels album. Take it away. Oh, yeah, they're rolling downtown to hear that rock and roll music. Well, it may not save the world, but it helps them survive. And the rock and roll rebels are right into It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 